0: You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. The automotive industry is synonymous with innovation. In 1913, Henry Ford transformed manufacturing forever with the first moving assembly line, shrinking the time required to build a car from 12 hours to just one and a half. Today, automotive trailblazers are tackling new challenges. As electric vehicles take the world by storm, software innovation is the key to scaling EV infrastructure to meet growing demand, powering millions of EVs on the road, and optimizing manufacturing processes for the vehicles of the future. Yet in many ways, modern development and DevOps practices still follow Ford's early manufacturing principles of speed and efficiency. But in a hyper-connected world where the risks are much higher, security by design is both an imperative and a shared responsibility. The good news is it's achievable, according to today's guest, Dusty Anderson, who's a managing director in ProTivity's global digital identity practice. That's Protivity, the global consulting firm, and a CyberArk partner. In our conversation, as you'll hear, Dusty talks about identity's crucial role in moving toward DevSecOps, that desired, secure, modernized state to effectively balance speed, risk, and usability. Dusty's clients find themselves in various stages of cyber maturity, so she has a pretty strong finger on the pulse of where organizations and varying industries stand when it comes to identity security. We dive into DevSecOps challenges, opportunities, and cultural implications, along with proven shift left practices for strengthening security and enabling confident innovation. It was great to talk with her. Here's my conversation with Dusty Anderson. Thank you for joining us to start things off as the managing director of the global consulting firm Protivity. You guide clients when it comes to cybersecurity and things related to cybersecurity um, to get an idea for what that's all about. How do you start with a new client?
1: We try and meet them right where they are, wherever their journey is at that point. Clients are, are coming to us from a multitude of avenues here at Protivity. And so um, I never know if it's going to be a call coming in from an audit that they've struggled through or uh, if they've got a, a breach and, and we're on a rescue mission immediately, or if it's one of those clients that are really having the foresight and trying to think about and strategize their journey and aren't in a rush. We try and just kind of understand where they are, what, what they're calling in for, and then really assess, all right, what's going to be the real mode of of success for them. No client's the same. When I'm picking up the phone or joining a web conference, what the problem's going to be or what the real problem is. And I think that's sometimes the, the real adventure, I, I would say, with working with clients is they are calling in thinking that they have identified the problem. And I would say nine times out of 10, it's probably also or could be completely something else so it's it's trying to help them peel back that onion yeah and and figure it out that sounds
0: a little bit like when you start googling health concerns and and then you contact your doctor <laughs> and you say you know exactly what it is and they say well actually maybe tap the brakes because i'm the doctor and i'll figure
1: that out exactly yeah
0: <laughs> so you and your team how how big a team is it, and and aside from getting those calls and and doing the strategy, what what is the overall charge?
1: So I lead a, a few specific teams, um, and I'll say so part of my responsibility is leading our privilege access security teams. I also lead a talented team of customer identity strategists and and implementers as well. I kind of co-lead our digital identity practice. So um, we also have a large team that that really lives in the space of identity governance and administration and role-based and policy-based access controls and things like that. So I say I'm one of many practitioners in the digital identity team, which is about 120 plus strong for us globally but we don't go that alone we also share our approach with our colleagues in our cloud security teams and our architecture teams uh, we have a, a wide practice in in technology consulting and so I love to parachute in someone that might be a specific expert as we land on a problem you know just the other day it was well we've got all of these permissions and GCP and we're not really sure what we're doing in, in GCP. Okay, great. I know, you know, the PAM side of that problem, but it's a bigger problem. So I'm going to pull in my GCP experts and, and just have that conversation with me. The client doesn't always need to know that we're all kind of a micro focus behind the scenes. We want to come to them and, and really just show a United Front because that's how they're tackling the problem. They're not necessarily always concerned, well, this person's in this department over here. We're all coming to the table, trying to solve a problem together. And we as consultants, I, I think should definitely approach it that way as well.
0: One of the things probably that comes up fairly frequently these days, and, and I guess to, to level set for, for the folks out there listening who may not know what DevSecOps is, or maybe need a refresher, what is it and how does it differ from DevOps?
1: So DevOps all about speed, automation, quickness to deploy, little human interaction as possible. So if you're kind of listening to that and thinking about that, speed and security do not go hand in hand in any world. That's where DevSecOps was really born out of. Is the DevOps world really came up first? Everyone was building, building faster, building stronger. And there was a need for security uh, around that you know, build process of quick deployment into production and, and getting things orchestrated in such a fashion with all these automated tools uh, and code and really trying to reduce the amount of human interaction in that development work as possible. So kind of thinking through all those things that lacks visibility that lacks the the pause for security and testing and things. And so the DevSecOps, you know, framework really kind of came alongside of that to try and complement that process, but create a little bit of that balance of making sure that there are some checks along the way there in checking that code and checking that deployment so that you're not immediately, you know, throwing things out there into production that could really collapse your environment or collapse your brand overnight and things like that. DevOps folks really think about, I want to make minimal disruption to the user experience. Like, I don't want this to go down. I want the user to be able to just, you know, write through and, and make it seamless as possible. For DevSecOps, yeah, that's great, but we still need to make sure that it's secure before we throw that out there and, and, and not throw it out there really thoughtfully place it, you know, out in the environment or into production. So I think that that's, those those worlds can kind of collide a bit. And we certainly, as we meet with our customers, sometimes feel that push-pull tension of where we're trying to do things fast and the other team's trying to just, yeah, I hear you, but I want to do it secure. And there's a, a little bit of that striking that balance. And I Really, that's what identity and access management is all about, right? And, and I think that's an age-old clip we've probably all heard over and over of striking that balance between security and business enablement. So DevSecOps is really, I think, at the cutting edge of how do you do that as fast as possible, but with those security measures still in place where you're in- enabling more just-in-time features so that the speed is there and you're trying to make it as frictionless as possible. But if there is friction, it's with a purpose, that it's it's a, a quick sound bite, if you will, uh, in in their day of trying to get their job done and making sure that there is still rapid deployment, but that it has kind of that boundary of, of security and visibility and governance that um, traditionally they just kind of lacked.
0: We've already touched upon the security aspect, obviously, but what are the benefits of DevSecOps, the security and the speed? What What are the other benefits of it?
1: That's really it. Security and speed. Credentials are still the main problem. And if we think back to, I was promising myself I was not going to use this analogy, but it, it just <laughs> has to, right? Solar winds. I know it's like mm-hmm. buzz phrase, hashtag, everything out there. We've probably overheard it, but credentials in clear text that were compromised I, I mean it's just it's very simple we're still trying to protect these credentials and when you see solarwinds 123 it's like okay come on that that was quite obvious what was going to probably happen there but no one really checked through that and thought through that before they deployed that code and so um we've got to be careful about what we're going to do and and how we're going to do it the kind of the the still when, what, where, why, and is it necessary is really still something that we need to be thinking through no matter how fast we're going. And there's automated tools in place now to help you think through that process faster, do those validation steps, but those steps still need to be done. So it's not necessarily, you know, that you have to have still all the testers and the QA team being the, you know, 20 plus people in your organization, a lot of companies have gone and found ways to automate some of those testing scripts and and testing procedures, but you still have to be able to run those and have to be able to have that validation there. And then to have that kind of centralized um, solution in place is, is really critical to kind of close that gap and making sure that there is constant visibility into what's being done.
0: I think it's worth asking, um, how can DevSecOps practices help address vulnerabilities in organizations' development workflows and environments?
1: Well, they can find them. And I think that's one of the biggest things is, is finding them, looking for them, hunting for those vulnerabilities and weaknesses and addressing them as they're being found, not being retroactive. And that's, I think, a- another big difference between DevOps and DevSecOps is DevOps kind of tests at the very end and says, okay, looks great. Let's, let's throw it out into the environment where DevSecOps is kind of doing those micro touch points along the way to really identify where that vo- vulnerability could be and, and stop it there before it gets even bigger and snowballs out. Someone gave me the example the other day of, you know, DevOps really came from kind of the automotive industry. And if you think about the way that we build a car and it was just like so simple. I've lived in this cybersecurity world for so long. You forget about the the simplicity of where a lot of these practices started from. And as you're building that car, you know, it's yes, it's the wheel, it's the axle, it's the engine. But someone had to test that engine and that was third party maybe that are that are supplying the engine so you hope that they've gone through their rigorous testing to know that that engine's you know going to run and do everything that it was built to do all the way down to all the spark plugs that are being put into that car and then us as a consumer just expecting that hey this has been certified from you know name your favorite car type and you're going to put your family in it and you're going to drive off assuming that it's been securely tested and everything like that well that's kind of the balance of DevOps and DevSecOps as well is, you know, DevOps, they want to build and they want to build that car as fast and make, make it through the assembly line as fast as possible. SecOps is going to say, well, wait a second, would you put your family in there yet? Like let's go along the way and make sure that there's incremental testing so that if this lug nut is not staying on the wheel, it doesn't pass go no matter, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily do with the engine, but the smallest detail could still cause you to go off the road. And so really thinking through and, and measuring all, all of those details in that build process are really important. But again, being able to do that quickly along the way is is really still the, the mode, especially in DevSecOps. It's not your traditional PAM. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where clients kind of go off the rails. If they have done traditional IAM and traditional PAM for long enough, you kind of get in this mode of, human interaction, and they forget about that non-human element, the speed element that is certainly out there now with the crawl and crawl and sprawl of, of cloud. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's explosive. Things are moving at a much faster pace. And so if you go at these projects or engagements or implementations like you would a normal PAM project, you've already started off a little bit on the wrong foot because you're expecting those conversations and the project mode to follow the same style as what your DevSecOps teams are going to be interacting with you like. So you've really got to kind of almost take your traditional identity hat off and put a really modernized identity hat on to be able to to talk and think like this technologies and tools that are out there in that space.
0: That's really interesting. How much of this comes down to the need for simplicity and then how much of a struggle is is that?
1: I think it's a constant struggle because all of these tools out there, when you're talking about kind of the DevSecOps space, there are so many tools and niche tools, and each one kind of wants to inherently interact on an island. Like they, they aren't built really to play well together is, is what we're kind of realizing. And so the solutions that we're trying to deploy are built to integrate individually with each of these tools so that you have that hub, you have that visibility there. But that complexity is is growing. It's not going away. Being able to standardize some of these policies, standardize the way that that we're capturing these credentials, managing the credentials on the back end, that's that's helping to thwart the complexity from getting out of control and being able to find simplicity where there is that capability and also understanding and recognizing where it gets overly complex. How do you peel that back? How do we look at that and not let it become a snowball? What is causing that additional complexity? Is it because you have a entitlement sprawl in cloud and you've just let it go for too long and you need to do some cleanup there? Are your teams going out and grabbing tools and not giving you that visibility in? It, it's amazing to me still that fundamentally we lack sometimes just simple communication of, hey, not sure if anyone knew this or not, but we just acquired this tool and we've deployed it into our environment. Just sometimes that simple like Email out or announcement it can make a huge difference with our clients where, you know, they're sometimes just literally running scans to just see what applications just got stood up in their environment that they didn't know about. And rather than being able to, you know, have an open dialogue and make sure that there's a process in place for when new applications get onboarded into their environment, there's a, a policy and a procedure for that. So sometimes still, it's, it's a simple business process that gets left behind because technology and tools are, are just growing, expanding so much in that environment. You've, you've got to have kind of that back and forth of that still conversation and steering committees that are really thinking about and talking about what's the vision and how do you get there and how do we control the number of tools that we really are managing in our environment today and, and, and making sure that there's justification. The Wild West is real. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Your clients, is it typically the CISO and the CISO's team or does it vary per organization?
1: It would vary, but I would say primarily that's usually our audience, mostly CISO orgs uh, are, are who we're typically working with occasionally CIOs and that's usually just simply because they don't maybe have a CISO role or they're they have a deputy CISO kind of stepping in uh, but I would say traditionally um, we're working very closely with the CISOs.
0: How high is DevSecOps and DevOps as far as top of mind goes for, for the CISO and their team?
1: But I definitely think that it it varies because like I said earlier we have folks that are still really thinking about their world and traditional identity, and they're not maybe even really doing that great of a job deploying traditional identity um, you know, measures and, and, and tool sets. And so, uh, again, kind of going back to meeting clients wherever they are in their journey of maturity in this space, there's still a wide variety out there. And, you know, I, I really thought kind of with the solar winds, that was such a hot topic that I really thought we'd see a rapid change. And it felt like it got quieted a little bit faster than I would have imagined. And it didn't create the wave of change like I would have anticipated in our security posture across the board. We had some clients that were really reactive to that, but they were reactive to, kind of plugging the problem and not really thinking about how do we prevent this from happening again in our environment. And so, you know, it was an immediate, like our incident response team here, like went through the roof of like, how did this happen? The forensic investigations were were on and maybe they changed a little bit of their DevSecOps posture. But they didn't really think all the way back into how does this relate into PAM? How does this interrelate into some of our other identity best practices? Or do we even have good best practices in place here? Are we we meeting the right criteria to to prevent this truly from ever happening again? Do we have a better ability to monitor uh, and be more proactive with that instead of waiting until the complete wheels fall off the car again? And so that was, um, I, I think, really surprising to me. And I, I think that part of that is because, one, we all all know that funding is the biggest key, right, for security programs, for tools, technology, funds are limited. So while we have a big problem and, and we want to tackle it, we have to do it with the funds available to us. And, and I, I totally understand that. But I think not even doing... You know, a strategy and trying to understand and roadmap out where do you want to get to, and how how long is that going to take you to get there, and what what smaller investments can be made versus doing nothing. And I think you know, a lot of companies did something, but did they get the biggest bang for their buck out of that? Um, you know, that's what I would probably challenge our industry to really think about is you know, when we do these strategies and assessments and and things, what's the value add out of that? Do they know what action now they need to go take? Have we empowered them to take that? And as we think back to kind of the variety of CISOs, some of them are go-getters that are really trying to think cutting edge understand the DevSecOps world. They kind of already have grown up in this space and they understand maybe a little bit more of the world of DevSecOps based on maybe their own career advancements into that space versus some uh, may not be as familiar. Maybe they had a different background and now have been hired in into a CISO role and they're trying to learn and kind of grow their own skill sets around trying to understand enough to support their teams. You know, it's a lot to take in as a CISO, and I don't expect any of them to be experts across the security stack. So you've got to be able to also rely on your team and rely on their expertise and being able to to really hear and capture what their pain points are and, and then work with other groups on how you solve those. And that's where I like to come in as a partner to my customers because again, they don't have to be the ac- experts in my domain. We just need to have that trusted relationship where I take into account this is also kind of your reputation at stake when you say, okay, I'm gonna work with Dusty and her team on this to help me get, you know, move that needle and and certainly try and, and accomplish what is needed there we come in, we try and surgically really look at, all right, pinpointing, these are all the different problems. This is how we would close these gaps and and work with them. Some CISOs are stay really involved and really engaged in that process and want to be in those workshop sessions and hearing the discussions. And others are like, hey, I trust you. I've got other fires to put out. So while you're doing that, I'll be over here. And we certainly appreciate that as well and can understand there's a lot of hats to be worn. It's just get the job done together at the end of the day.
0: Software supply chain security. It's been in the news a lot. You've mentioned the high profile breach previously in this conversation. How does DevSecOps help companies bolster their software supply chain security? And what are some best practices you recommend for clients to mitigate these types of attacks?
1: I think that the biggest issue is that this access usually goes through pipeline without anyone noticing and so you have to have application security testing and vulnerability hunting again for those weak credentials and weak authorizations I, I mean there's there has to be that process in place because by nature supply chains trying to bypass identity controls for the need for speed you know that's that's kind of the name of the game and so you've got all these kind of third party services out there that are going undetected with a ton of automation and code available whether it be APIs, um, open source libraries. Uh, you know, developers are, are looking for ways to access that and, and make their jobs faster by um, pulling in those third party sources and and using that that code or what have you in the environment. You know, you have to be able to just find that that balance of enabling some identity controls there and being able to to recognize weak credentials or weak authorizations and and protect yourselves from that. I mean, SolarWinds, too many people trusted the code was good, period. I mean, it was used by, what, what was it, like 33,000 customers. And it took too long for someone to say, time out, it's bad. Don't, don't keep using it, you know, for the ripple effect was enormous the nature of what we do today, so much of it is unseen. I just did a, a webinar at the end of last year, and and that was kind of a, a tagline that we used is for credentials seen and unseen, because I think that that's really what the new name of the game is, is everything's coming in undetected. It's trying to remain as invisible as, as possible. This is where we're at today. And so being able to have some of those detections in place and scans in place to really look for those vulnerabilities at the beginning. Again, not waiting until the end and then kind of trying to hope for the best, but but incrementally making sure that you're kind of looking for those weaknesses. That's really what we have to do. It's not a nice to have anymore. It's a necessity in your security posture.
0: So I think for credential seen and unseen, that's actually a pretty good segue into the explosion of identities, both human and machine. How does that factor into the DevSecOps equation?
1: I would say it is the DevSecOps equation almost. Human interaction in a DevOps world is really what they're trying to avoid. We slow things down when we're hands on keyboard. Uh, I mean, the word manual process is really being replaced with the human process of any kind. And so, um, you know, we've got bots that are automating jobs and and all sorts of automation tools out there being able to push code, do different things. AI is an explosion now. But all of those environments, even in cloud, um, they all have an identity and credential aspect to it. That, that part's not going away. So as long as we continue to focus back on the identity of who, what, or what has access and what will that access allow. If we can answer those questions and we give the thumbs up to those answers, then we're thinking the right way. If we're giving a thumbs down, but we're giving it too late, then we've missed the opportunity there. So it's making sure, again, that we've got those checks and balances, but the the ability to see and have that visibility to the who, what, and why, and how, and where can it go, that's becoming increasingly challenging. And so we have to modernize our IAM posture to be able to get to back into the, the space where we can see it all, we can govern it all, because um, our world just got ever much larger I think we all need to realize the perimeter is really just the identity and the credentials and how do you protect those best way possible because they're prevalent everywhere and the sprawl is huge. So being able to cover your cloud assets is not just a single-pointed solution. And I think that that's where, again, we can get into a lot of complexity if we overthink how many tools we think need to do the job. Um, But then sometimes we underthink it and don't do enough with being able to make sure that you have that full visibility and, and governance in those environments. So that that makes it um, really challenging. And And we still have a lot of customers that are kind of focusing only on the human aspect. They keep, you know, every phase one starts with human, but then we stop and we need to make sure that phase two in- involves the non human credentials. And what are you doing next with that? Because we know that there are, Way more x number of non-human credentials and devices related to one identity. So we're solving just a, a small piece of the pie for only focusing on human identity as well. There's just a lot to govern and, and you need to have the right tools in place to help you get there. If you're only thinking about it from a very traditional lens, you're you're missing that modernization and that journey, that digital transformation, if you will, that that needs to happen.
0: What's the number one security challenge? Unique to non-human identities.
1: The number one security challenge. Oh, goodness. There's multiple aspects to the non-human security equation that have to be looked at. If we take just service accounts, for example, I'm doing an engagement right now for a client that brought us in to help them identify and onboard or vault all of these security accounts out of, you know, 300 plus applications. It's a huge project. But what they didn't recognize was going to be that not every service account is made the same as the next service account. Even in one application, you can have a variety of service accounts and what what types of access that they have, maybe it's more dynamic than the next service accounts and and things. And so, um, you know, there has to be that element of discovery done, and it, it's not always a one size fits all. So we have to be able to create those standards where there's patterns that exist, but recognizing there's going to be exceptions, but those exceptions also have to be managed as well. We can't just put those to the side and say, okay, we'll come back to those in 2024. We have to certainly think about. Every application, every account type has its own unique path um, in our environment, and we've got to make sure that we do the due diligence of kind of understanding what point A to point B looks like, or is it point A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and all of a sudden we've lost control of what this credential can do, and and how do we then kind of bring it back to what is its function, is that least-privileged? And how can we make sure then that we keep it as such and who can access it or what can access it in our environment and making sure that that's always appropriate. So I think, you know, we all are hoping for that quick answer, that silver bullet. It doesn't exist, but a silver bullet approach and methodology can get you there to those standardizations and and pull you back into simplicity uh, for you know the sake of security as well.
0: I'm glad you mentioned AI earlier. Automation like RPA and, and AI are getting more popular to the point where AI power tools can even write code for developers. What's your take on the increase in automation in the DevOps space and how security can help enable these technologies without slowing down velocity?
1: It goes back to code and automation still need credentials. Sometimes it's privileged and sometimes it's it's not, but it, it could be from supply chain libraries and services. And so being able to still protect those credentials and understand what they're going to do or what they give you access to, maybe not you, but maybe also someone else access to, uh, is, is really still, um, I think, the main problem that we need to be looking at and making sure that we have a good solution for is recognizing these credentials are coming in from everywhere and they they're being accessed by someone or something and we've got to make sure that we are uh you know creating a, a structure in place for that standardizing how we manage those creating the visibility there the governance there to um be able to thwart any attack or react much faster to something that seems off in our environment
0: more tools are getting added to the DevOps toolbox every day. How can security ensure that islands of security or vault sprawl isn't occurring?
1: Communication is one of the key things, making sure that you know they're communicating what tools they're introducing, and then also being able to have that um, centralized solution and creating those integrations to manage each of these tools off on their island. That's really important. Uh, you know, you can't have a centralized solution that doesn't offer those. Um, Correct integrations that are going to get you the better controls and visibility into each of those tool sets, Um, but being thoughtful about what tools you're bringing into your environment really important. And then being able to to manage those and have that standardized strategy in place to centralize that that is really important. There, if you don't have a traditional vaulting solution, that's one thing, but you have to have ability to control and to monitor that access in place and and being able to do something is always much better than doing nothing and allowing those islands to just continue to exist and everyone continue to kind of manage things their own way. You're you're leaving way too big of gaps on the table.
0: You had mentioned analysis paralysis in the context of clients <laughs> needing to make decisions. I was hoping maybe you could tell us how analysis paralysis figures into your your day-to-day with clients.
1: Analysis paralysis, it is my timeline killer of a good, well thought out project plan. I, I can appreciate clients wanting to trust, but verify any advice, any ideas, any uh, designs. Um, but at the end of the day, we're bringing experts to the table. We've lived this world. We're, we're in this space day in and day out in the trenches with our customers. This is what works. Analysis paralysis sometimes can really break down that wow factor of time to value when uh, you know we've got customers that are wanting to see, well, what else could be done? Well, the what else is not what's on the table right now. What was on the table was fixing this problem. And this is how we're gonna fix this problem. And then when we close that, we can move on to the next phase or next work stream to fix the next problem. You gotta start small though, and then grow and adopt and understand. We love to do more of the pilot phase so that they can kind of see and start understanding it, and then think bigger, broader, faster, stronger. You know, it, it's they just get overwhelmed too quickly in this space, and we I understand why it's a big space, but we really try and, and help them to not get stuck in that hamster wheel of analysis paralysis too often.
0: Dusty Anderson, Managing Director of ProTivity's Digital Practice, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Trust Issues. If you like this episode, please check out our back catalog for more conversations with cyber defenders and protectors. And don't miss new episodes. Make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts. And let's see. Oh, oh yeah. uh, Drop us a line if you feel so inclined. Questions, comments, suggestions, which come to think of it are kind of like comments. Our email address is trustissues, all one word, at cyberarc.com. See you next time.